0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 26. But before we jump into that content, I just wanted to say welcome to you. There are a number of new listeners over the last week or so. And so if you're one of those new listeners, welcome. If you're a long-time listener to the Listener's Commentary, welcome to you as well. My goal here on the Listener's Commentary is to teach straight through books of the New Testament in a clear down-to-earth, understandable way so we can understand what that original context is, how to really understand the text, and then give a few reflections on how we can put that into practice in our life. It's what I like to call Blue Jeans Theology. So welcome, and let's jump into Mark chapter 11, verse 12 to 26, and let's begin by putting that into context. Just the day before, so in the reading of Mark's gospel, uh, Mark 11, 1 through 11 is the day before the story that we're going to look at here in chapter 11, 12 and following. And on the previous day, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem to a kingly welcome, at least by some. Mark has highlighted for us over the several previous chapters that Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem And Mark told us that on that trip, there has been this sense of amazement and foreboding along the way. Well, now he's arrived in Jerusalem and Jesus, we know because of what Mark has told us, Jesus knows what lies ahead and he doesn't try to avoid it. So he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey in a very symbolic act, fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. And that itself has already stirred up tension. It's stirred up controversy just by virtue of the way he rode into the city. Well, when we get to Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 26, it's Monday. So his triumphal entry, his royal ride into the city happened on Sunday, and that's why it's frequently called Palm Sunday. Well, in this episode that we look at here on this recording, it's now Monday of what is often called Holy Week. And Jesus carries out two prophetic actions that symbolize judgment on Israel, or judgment, maybe more specifically, on the temple. And the structure of this passage that we're going to look at here in detail in a moment is important for understanding it, especially for the understanding of the meaning of the cursing of the fig tree. Notice the way the story works. You have the cursing of the fig tree, and that wraps around around the demonstration in the temple. So Jesus pronounces a curse on a fig tree. Then he continues on into Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he overturns the tables of the money changers and chases them away. Then he goes back out of Jerusalem to Bethany for the night. And then the next morning on his way into Jerusalem, the fig tree that he cursed is now withered. Mark has put these two snapshots together because they are both prophetic-style actions that communicate judgment. Uh, Among the Jewish prophets, there was this tradition of acted-out lessons, acted-out parables. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Cursing the fig tree isn't just about hunger. It's about the temple. And Mark makes this clear by how he tells the story. Fig tree? temple fig tree so somehow the cursing of the fig tree and what jesus does in the temple go together so let's look at the details beginning in mark chapter 11 verse 12. here's the way it reads on the next day so it's the day after the triumphal entry jesus rode into the temple the previous day and looked around at the temple, Mark told us, then went back out of the city of Jerusalem, back to Bethany for the night. And so on the next day, uh, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing from a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, be sure to keep in mind that this is not a random act of a man looking for a snack. This is a symbolic action in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets. It's an object lesson, really, for his disciples. Jesus has been over this hill on his travels to Jerusalem multiple times. He has friends in Bethany. That's why he's staying there during this week. He has friends there and he's stayed with those friends many times. In fact, just the previous day, he traveled this path twice. He rode into the city of Jerusalem. Then he walked back out to Bethany in the evening. And so he's, he's passed by this fig tree multiple times. Um, Not only that, Jesus knows that figs don't mature until the fall, but we're in the spring. Um, And that indicates to us that he knows. this This is not a random act. He knows what he's doing. In the spring, fig trees like this that were leafed out should have small little nodules on them that would become the mature fruit later in the year. Sometimes these little nodules were referred to as early figs. Well, it seems like this particular fig tree is all leafed out, but doesn't have any of these nodules. It has no early figs. And what's interesting is grapevines and fig trees like this were often used in the Old Testament as symbols for the nation of Israel, and very often as symbols for her fruitlessness and faithlessness. Let me give you an example. Here's an example from Micah chapter 7 verse 1. It's an example that fits very nicely with what Jesus does here in the temple here in a little bit and what he does to this fig tree. Micah 7 1 says this, woe to me, for I am like harvests of summer fruit, like gleanings of grapes. There is not a cluster of grapes left to eat, nor an early fig which I crave. Now, in the context of Micah, this is actually a picture of injustice and faithlessness among the leaders of the nation of Israel in Micah's day. And so it's taking their fruitlessness, it's taking their faithlessness, it's taking their injustice, and picturing it as you're like you're like summer fruit, like the gleanings of grape, and yet there's no clusters left to eat. You're like a fig tree that should have early figs on it, and there's nothing there. Well, that's exactly what this picture is in Mark chapter 11. And so Jesus, in coming to this fig tree, not finding early figs on it, is taking this opportunity to pronounce, via prophetic action, judgment on the nation of Israel. Because just like this fig tree, she looks like she's all good. She's all leafed out, but is fruitless. And the nation really has the same problem. A tree in full leaf held the promise of fruit, but gave none. Israel had all the marks of God's people, but they were fruitless. So, on their way into the city for the day, Jesus pronounces a curse on the fig tree. Now, Mark will finish that story in a bit, but first, here's what happens in the city of Jerusalem. Then they came to Jerusalem, verse 15. And Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple grounds. The temple grounds were massive. Herod the Great had built massive retaining walls to create a giant platform and in the middle of that platform sat the temple proper. But around the temple proper was a massive courtyard that covered about 36 acres, more than 25 football fields these other courtyards were open to the Gentiles, whereas the temple proper was only open to the Jews. In fact, there was a wall, a short little wall around the temple proper that had inscriptions all along it in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew that said, if any Gentile passed beyond that barrier, then he was responsible for his death that followed. So Gentiles couldn't go into the temple proper, but In the broader courtyards, Gentiles were welcome. And around the perimeter of this large courtyard were porches or what was called stoas, S-T-O-A-S, colonnaded porches of various size and beauty. In fact, one of them was the Royal Stoa. It was like a two-story building renowned for its beauty. And the money changers were located in one of these areas. In fact, it was quite possible they were located in the area of the Royal Stoa. And originally, the stalls and shops uh, and money changers booths had been located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives to really provide a service to all the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for feast times like this, that they needed to uh, buy sacrifices and uh, they needed to make sure they had the proper currency and the proper type of money for the temple offerings and all of that. And so they were actually providing a service to the pilgrims and they had originally been located on the Mount of Olives. Uh, There is some evidence that moving them from the Mount of Olives into the temple courts was actually a recent innovation by the high priest Caiaphas. So it had just happened here in the last few years. And it's their presence in the temple that is really the focus of Jesus's ire. And so he chases out the money changers, he overturns uh, their tables, and then Jesus explains what he's done. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 17. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, and then he's going to quote a couple Old Testament passages. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it, quote unquote, a den of robbers. Jesus' words here actually combine Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. In Isaiah 56, God's house is meant to be a house of prayer for all people. That's why it says for all the nations. And the word nations is also the word for Gentiles. The same word, both in Hebrew and in Greek. And so it's supposed to be house of prayer for the Gentiles, for the nations, for all peoples. But here they are, In the court of Gentiles, the only place the nations or the Gentiles can go in the temple, and they're turning it into a marketplace. Not only that, he also says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And it's that phrase, den of robbers, that harkens back to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, the imagery is of the temple being used as a hideout for bandits and robbers. And not only that, in Jeremiah 7, the broader context, they're claiming a false sense of security. They're basically saying, we're hiding out in the temple. Babylon can't touch us. Babylon won't destroy us. We've got God's temple here. Well, likewise, in Jesus' day, they have this false sense of security. We're the people of God. Look, Look at our massive temple. But in reality, Jesus says judgment is still going to fall. So they're acting as if the temple guarantees God's protection regardless of their unfaithfulness, just like in Jeremiah's day. And that's why Jesus says, but you've made it a den of robbers. You're making it a hideout for all your evil and all your unfaithfulness. And you're thinking somehow it's going to give you safety and security and protect you from the judgment of God, but it really won't. Now, this incident here in the temple is traditionally referred to as the cleansing of the temple. And I suppose that works, but really the point isn't to cleanse the temple. The point is a symbolic action to basically say, particularly in view of quoting these passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah, to say that the temple is uh, under threat of judgment because of the fruitlessness and faithlessness of Israel's leadership. And so by overturning the tables and referring to these two texts, Jesus is calling all of this background to mind, and he's warning them that judgment is on its way. Well, the chief priests don't miss the point and they don't miss the Old Testament connections. So look at verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how they could put him to death. Jesus isn't running. He knows what's coming um, at the end of this week. He's been warning his, his disciples about it and he's not running from it. He's not hiding from it. He knows this is the climactic moment of his life and his ministry. And so now the chief priests are looking for a way how they can put him to death. For they were afraid of him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so they're afraid of Jesus, particularly because he has so much popular support and they're afraid of the people revolting against them. So, Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the day. He does some teaching in the temple. He, he What Mark focuses on is the snapshot of this prophetic, symbolic act pronouncing judgment on the temple. And then Mark tells us in verse 19, And whenever evening came, they would leave the city. So, during this week, they come into the city for the day, but they don't stay there for the night. And so, at the end of this day, they leave the city of Jerusalem for the evening. And after... Uh, going back out of Jerusalem, back out to Bethany where they're staying. Then they'll head back into Jerusalem the next morning. And here's what happens in verse 20, the next morning. And as they were passing by in the morning, so now it's Tuesday morning of Holy Week, Jesus' final week leading up to his crucifixion. As they're passing by in the morning, leaving Bethany on their way into Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree that... The previous morning, Jesus had pronounced a curse on. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So we now come back to the fig tree story. And this is common in Mark where he wraps one story around another and thereby connecting them thematically. That's what he he does. Fig tree cursing, uh, temple action, and now... Back to the fig tree story. And so wrapping the action in the temple uh, with the cursing of the fig tree story indicates that the cursing of the fig tree makes a similar point as the demonstration in the temple. Just as the tree has been cursed and withered from its roots up, so the temple, because of its fruitlessness, is going to wither from its roots up as well. It's going to be destroyed as well. But then... And when Peter says this to him, Jesus comments and replies back to Peter and in his teaching back to Peter, he adds a lesson on faith and prayer to it. And that really forces us to ask, man, how does that connect with the pronouncement of judgment on the temple? And some commentators and scholars say, well, it doesn't seem like there's much of a connection. It's almost like Mark just kind of dumped in some random teaching of Jesus here But I just feel like we should at least give Mark the benefit of the doubt and assume that he didn't just randomly drop in some teachings of Jesus that had no connection to his narrative. So even if we totally struggle to track with Mark and see the connection he's making, I think we should at least make some effort at trying to do that. So here's how Jesus responds. Peter says, look, Rabbi, the tree you cursed, it's now all withered up. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it'll be granted to him. There has been some debate among scholars as to what Jesus is referring to by this mountain. Does he just mean it generically, like any old mountain, no specific mountain, just You speak to any old mountain and it's just using it symbolically, generically for like some big object that you've got to deal with, right? Could be. Um, One scholar, interestingly enough, proposes that that it refers to the Herodian. Um, And the Herodian was a artificial mountain built by Herod the Great that if you're looking back east from the Mount of Olives was visible and... So this particular scholar says, oh, there's a mountain that had been artificially made and thus moved, uh, and it, it could be that Jesus is speaking about victory over pagan powers. suppose that's possible, but in the direction they're heading, that mountain is behind them at this point. It's not visible any longer. So I don't think that's quite what he's talking about. Could be the Mount of Olives. They're actually walking over the Mount of Olives when Jesus says this. But most likely, it seems to me that it refers to the Temple Mount. One, that's the context. We're talking about the temple, the fig tree, right? The whole story. Um, and so I think that makes sense contextually. But not only that, the temple is frequently referred to as the mountain of the Lord or the mountain of the house of the Lord or even this mountain. In Jewish literature, it's often referred to that way. And that's what the cursing of the fig tree and the, the demonstration of the temple are all about. It's about the temple and it's about judgment on the temple because it's become fruitless. And the temple is literally filling their field of view when Jesus says this. They've, they've left Bethany. They're coming down the side of Mount olives and right in front of them is the temple, the mountain of the house of the Lord. This mountain um, is right in front of them. And so as amazing and magnificent, and permanent, and large as the temple seems, it can be, indeed will be, uprooted by the very power of God. That seems to be the contextual and logical connection um, that the phrase this mountain makes in context. Then Jesus goes on and says in verse 24, therefore, I say to you. All things for which you pray and ask, believe. So now we've moved from the mountain to all things, not just uprooting this mountain by the power of God, but all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, they'll be granted to you. And the first thing to say about verse 24 is that this is an unabashed promise of effectiveness in prayer. And we need to hear that for what it is that God intends to answer the prayers of his faithful people. And so that's what we have here. But at the same time, we also have to take a statement like this um, and look at all of Jesus' words and really all of the rest of the New Testament teaching about prayer. In plenty of other places, there are qualifications put on unabashed prayer promises like this. Um, for example, that you need to ask while being obedient, or ask while being connected to the vine, John 15, or asking in Jesus' name, under his authority and as his representative. And so I think we could take this prayer promise and hearing it for what it is, God wants to answer our prayers and the prayers of God's people are effective. Um, but at the same time we could we could say this is This is typical overstatement to make a point. Jewish teachers like Jesus were fond of this. They're fond of using overstatement as a way of shaking people awake and making a point. And that's what Jesus is doing here is like, look, you're so impressed by the cursing of this fig tree, but here's the thing. God wants to to do the things that you ask him to do. Now we hear that in the whole context of what Jesus is getting at. We hear it in the immediate context of dealing with the falseness and fruitlessness of the temple. And we realize it's still connected to the will of God and all of that, right? But Jesus wants us to realize that Prayer is effective. It's an effective way of getting God's work done in the world when we humble ourselves before God and ask him. Then Jesus goes on in verse 25 and says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. Jesus often connects praying and forgiveness. So we get that here. In fact, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, you get the whole Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and then right at the end of it, you you get a statement that's very much like the the little add-on statement in verse 26 here about forgiveness. Um, it's about forgiveness. Uh, If you you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. If you do forgive, he will. Well, we actually get a little statement like that in verse 26, although it doesn't seem like maybe it was original to Mark. That's why some translations will put it in brackets. Some will put it in a footnote. Verse 26 says, But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you. Something Jesus is known to have said. Like I said in Matthew chapter six, at the end of the sermon on the, or at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says something very much like this. Here, it seems like a scribe added that in at some point in the copying of the text because it fits so nicely with verse 25. The point is that that forgiveness is a key part of being in a right relationship with God, so that our prayers can be effective. Now, let's just pause and reflect on and wrap up this section by asking this question. How do we understand Jesus' words here, especially in the context about judgment on the temple? Well, first, we've already said that he's giving a powerful prayer promise that we need to take seriously. And at the same time, we need to read it within the whole context of Jesus' teaching and the Bible's teaching on prayer. But it's a powerful prayer promise. And second, it's contextually and symbolically connected to the temple. It's the mountain that's right in front of them. Jesus just performed two prophetic actions pronouncing judgment on that very mountain of the house of the Lord. Not only that, the temple was regarded as the place of prayer and the place of forgiveness. So much so that if you were away from the temple, it was best to orient yourself towards the temple when you prayed. Uh, but this whole story has been about the failure of the temple and its leadership to fulfill their calling to be the place where earth and heaven meet, where man and God intersect and connect. So what's the point? Well, initially, Jesus is talking to them about asking for this mountain, that is, seemingly, the temple, to be thrown into the sea. That is, asking God to replace the fruitless temple system with a new way and a better way. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is saying, first off, is that anytime we pray in faith and faithfulness for God to bring his kingdom and to restore all things, even in the context of removing the old order as permanent and great and massive as it seemed, even in that context, God hears the prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, do whatever you have to do to make that happen. He hears that. So I think that's one of the key things we can take away from this. I think the other thing is just uh, to hear these words in the context of have faith in God, genuine confidence in God, and authentic loyalty to God. That's what makes prayer effective. Not the temple, not any other religious system, not any other ritual, devoid Of such confidence and loyalty to God. So, by virtue of your faith in God, in real relationship with Him, have faith in Him and pray. Ask for His kingdom to come. Know that His will will be done on earth and trust Him for it as you walk and live in relationship with Him.